it is again impressed upon every officer and man of this command that ground, once captured, must under no circumstances be given up in the absence of direct, positive, and formal orders to do so emanating from these headquarters. Troops occupying ground must be supported against counterattack and all gains held. We are not going back but forward. By order of Major General Robert Alexander, Commander, 77th Division, American Expeditionary Force, September 28, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 56, Meuse-Aragon, La Mort or The Small Pocket. Thank you everyone for the recent reviews on iTunes. Uh, as of the time of writing, the number was up to 292. So I'm sure at this point, Dan Carlin is feverishly writing his next episode so that the BFWWP doesn't catch up to him too quickly. That's a, a poor attempt at humor. Many thanks to listener Dave, a.k.a. my twin brother from the old days when we worked together. Uh, many thanks to listener Jake, who is just a very nice guy. And many thanks to Patreon patron Nancy, who asks great questions. Thank you all so very much for listening to the show. Small admin note uh, regarding episode 55 uh, about the 92nd Division, uh, regarding my discussion on junior grade African American officers. I probably needed to clarify that a bit more. What it was was that the lieutenants and captains that staffed the 92nd's infantry battalions came from the first. Officers Training School Established for African Americans in Des Moines. I consider this an error, but another great listener, uh, Major Jesse, who gently pointed the, out the issue in the first place, very graciously said it wasn't so much an error as a small chip left on the cutting room floor. I mean, officer and a gentleman, right? So, Thank you so much. To reiterate, the United States Army had African Americans in its officer ranks well before the Great War. All right. So last time, we left the Buffalo Soldiers of the 368th Infantry just after they had been relieved in the Binarville sector on the western edge of the Argonne Forest on the 1st of October, 1918. We're going to run the clock back a few days to the 27th of September and move to the right of the 368th, where Major Charles Whittlesey and his 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry, were fighting their way through the primeval forest hell of the Argonne. Great war enthusiasts and many Americans will doubtless have heard of Whittlesey and his lost battalion due to the legendary events themselves, but also thanks in part to that A&E movie starring Ricky Schroeder. Hey, I own a copy. However, did you know that when the events of the so-called lost battalion happened, that Major Whittlesey and his men were being surrounded for the second time? Before my deep dive into the Moors Argonne, I certainly did not. So, this episode will tell the tale of the small pocket on L'Homme Mort. So, we're starting on the 27th of September, 1918, the day after the massive Franco-American assault in the Meuse region. All listeners can go to the firstworldwarpodcast.com website, locate the post for this episode, and there you will find an operations map from the American Battle Monuments Commission that shows the ground over which the 77th Division fought. 
in the Meuse Valley itself. The German 5th Army was reeling from the previous day's attacks. The lines around the Butte de Montfaucon, key to the defense of the area, were buckling under the brutish hammer blows of the American 5th Corps. German commander General Max von Gullwitz was already moving two local reserve divisions into battle, the German 37th Division and the 5th Bavarian Reserve Division. In the Argonne Forest, the flexible defense system employed by the Germans was working, falling back from thinly manned front lines to better prepared positions in the Hagen-Nord trench system. The lines in the forest were holding for now, but General von Galvis was worried about his flanks. The U.S. 28th and 35th Divisions had made dangerous penetrations up the Air Valley, east of the Argonne, and this was what really threatened the forest defenses. In the Argonne and in the Air Valley, some of the lines were perilously thin for the Germans. In places, a few machine gun teams provided the only defense against the oncoming Americans. And for now, these machine gunners wreaked a savage and terrible toll on their latest enemy. Von Golovitz's priorities were to first stop any breakthroughs and further advances by the Americans, and then to retake lost ground. Tactically, von Galvitz's thinking was sound, and it once again illustrated the experience and skill that Max brought to the battlefield. Strategically, however, he made an error. For the first three days of the American-led offensive in the Meuse, he would think it was a feint. He still thought that the American target, the main American target, that is, would be Metz and that they would attack from the new lines established after the Saint-Miel salient was destroyed just two weeks earlier. It certainly made sense. Behind Metz lay the Brie iron fields, which were key to Germany's industrial war effort. The hits were to keep coming for the Germans. Marshal Foch's long simmering ideas for prosecuting this modern war were finally being acted upon. Following up on the Franco-American offensive launched on the 26th, the British 1st and 3rd Armies launched attacks on the Cambrai and Canal du Nord areas on the 27th. The next day, an army group led by King Albert of Belgium would plow into the German lines north of Ypres with the combined weight of the Belgian Army, the British 2nd Army, and the French 6th Army. The day after that, the 29th, would see a fourth joint offensive launched by the French and British in the Saint-Quentin area. The Germans would be hit everywhere at once. In all of these areas, the Germans would be able to grudgingly trade space for time, so the OHL, the Oberste Heeresleitung, or Army High Command, decided to focus its efforts on stopping the Americans in the Meuse-Argonne. The Americans were young, dumb, and full of fight, and this was the one sector of the front where no ground could be traded for time. In the last days of September, the OHL released four of its strategic reserve divisions to the Meuse region, drawing those units away from the rest of the Western Front as Foch had hoped. On the other side of the blood-soaked fields, those young and fresh doughboys weren't feeling either of those adjectives at the moment. Instead, they were wet and worn out. Heavy rain continued to fall, and its only benefit was that it provided drinking water for intrepid soldiers who caught it in their helmets or canteen cups. From the Argonne to the banks of the Meuse, the Americans were exhausted after the heavy combat of the 26th of September. It wasn't just that one day, which was quite exhausting enough, but that it came after several days of preparing for the offensive. The days prior to the attack had seen much work and sometimes little or no hot food. Now there was no food, period, making it up to the front. Men were eating their emergency rations, if they had them, or downing sometimes four-year-old German rations found in cleared dugouts or on corpses. Now with the offensive underway, the massive traffic jam behind the American First Army's front had halted all shipments of food and water towards the front. Lieutenant Bob Casey, 
an artilleryman, was working to push his guns through the snarl of stopped trucks and noted, quote, All the wheeled material of the AEF is on the road out of Avocor and all of it bound toward the front. Ambulances are stalled in the ditches. They can't get back and men who might have had a chance for their lives are dying because nothing can be done with them. What to do? Not much of anything. The road through Evacor was paved with vehicles, a double column of them stretching for indefinite miles forward and back, locked helplessly, end to end and hub to hub. An MP colonel making a futile effort to straighten the tangle raged back and forth in front of us. He was swearing like an insane man and tears were rolling down his cheeks unheeded. Unquote. Colonel Billy Mitchell, commander of all American air assets over the front and future World War II commander of the OSS, saw the traffic jam from overhead. Worse, he said, than I had ever seen on a battlefield. In addition, the troops immediately behind the front, being new at the game, built any number of fires in the woods which at once disclosed their positions. When I first saw it, it looked like the best target that I had ever seen for aviation on any field. All priority was given to hauling ammunition and artillery up to the front. Even that was sometimes an impossible task in the snarled mess that was the American supply system in action in those days. Food would have to wait. The wounded would have to wait. General Pershing, commander of both the American Expeditionary Force and its main tactical formation, the First Army, wanted the attack to continue. Stalemate had to be avoided, and guts and willpower would have to take the place of food for a little while. Struggling to reach the level of momentum he wanted his soldiers to meet, Pershing sent out an order on the 27th that stated, quote, The commander-in-chief commands that division commanders take forward positions and push their troops energetically, and the corps and division commanders be relieved of whatever rank who fail to show energy, unquote. Pershing here sounded much like the French in 1914 with the offensive attitude that left carpets of blue and red all over northern France and Flanders. As Colonel Doug Mastriano notes in his book Thunder in the Argonne, Pershing's tone in the order sounded a bit desperate. His order was a short-sighted one too, as ordering all commanders to get as close to the action as possible left them with a narrowed view of the battlefield. This narrowed view created a dangerous lack of situational awareness of the greater offensive and would lead to local and uncoordinated attacks. Many of the American divisions found that in their advances they had outrun their artillery, and with that traffic it was definitely going to become a deadly problem. However, on the far left, of the 1st Army's line, the 77th Division did not have this issue. Their advance into the Argonne Forest the day before hadn't been far enough to lose their guns. This was good for the commander of the 77th, one Major General Robert Alexander. He wanted to keep pushing through the woods. A gap was opening up on his right between his division and the 28th Pennsylvania Division, especially as half of that division was pushing its way up the valley of the River Air. To try and get online with the 28th, Alexander wanted his men to push forward and execute a double envelopment of German-held high ground ahead of his current frontline trace in the woods. The double envelopment is also known as the pincer movement, where an attacking army attacks both flanks of an enemy formation with an eye towards meeting behind the enemy and cutting him off. Ever since Hannibal put some industrial-grade stank on the Romans at Cannae with the double envelopment, it's been a thing many commanders have tried to reproduce. Major General Alexander had his marching orders. He'd received orders from First Corps Commander Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, who stated all three frontline divisions were to start attacking again at 6 a.m. on the 27th. 
The orders also stated that the attacks were to be pushed without reference to troops to the right or left. The battalions were to push forward through the enemy and not worry about their flanks. The only thing that mattered was momentum. On the very far left of the 77th Division's front and on the very western edge of the Aragon, Major Charles Whittlesey and his 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry Regiment, never received the order to attack at 6 a.m. on the morning of the 27th, and this was a godsend to him. It allowed him to try and get a handle on his battalion's situation. To his left, the 368th Infantry was unfortunately nowhere to be found, leaving his flank in the air. Amongst his own ranks, his men had taken heavy losses, especially among the recent FNG replacements sent from the 40th Division. Whittlesey used his time wisely and worked at getting his battalion regrouped and ready for their next orders. The 1st Battalion launched its attack with elements of the 2nd Battalion with it at 1.30 in the afternoon. Light rain had been falling for an hour at that point, further dashing the hopes of anyone thinking they might get a chance to dry out. Along with the rain, the Germans were heaving shells at the American line. Up ahead in the part of the forest that was as yet unseen, machine guns hammered. It was the same to the right, where the 307th Infantry Regiment had been fighting for hours now. Most everyone was wet and stiff from the cold and hunger, Private John Nell said of that afternoon. We were to move out to a new objective this day. The fog was heavy, and the shells dropping now and then close by could be seen through the mist, bursting a pinkish red and with a terrific crack and roar. The machine guns on both sides were popping. Nell's quotes, as well as the other quotes from members of the 308th Infantry, come from Robert Laplander's Finding the Lost Battalion, which is the definitive history of Major Whittlesey and his men. Rain began pouring down in the thick and dank forest. Within a short time, the doughboys of the 308th were under heavy fire as they began to take on the Germans dug into the Hagen line. Bullets were flying everywhere from every direction, thwacking into the trees and the cocky-clad bodies among them. Private Ralph John later spoke of, quote, marching on and on. I didn't think anything of stepping over dead bodies of men with whom I had started out or wading through a pool of blood. To think back, I can just see them drop, to look at them and hear what they said and their requests for help. But we had to go on and leave them for others to aid when they could work up to them, unquote. Private John was a veteran now and had seen many of these sights since the day before. I doubt he would say that he was used to seeing them by now. Through the impossibly thick forest and withering fire, the doughboys worked their way forward until they reached the Hagen line trenches. Here, fighting became ruthless and brutal as the Americans now came face to face with their enemy and machine gun and rifle gave way to knives, fists, pistols, and hand grenades. Even shovels were used. The Americans were grinding through the forest, meters at a time. As tactical commander Major Whittlesey ordered the 2nd Battalion of the 308th to swing up on his own battalion's left to help the push. Massing men helped identify German machine gun teams as the latter acquired their targets. Of course, Despite heavy casualties to the doughboys, it betrayed the enemy positions. These were then destroyed one by one. In the evening, a halt to the advance, such as it was, was called in order to let the 307th Infantry on the right to push up and come on line with the 308th. Whittlesey and his men had advanced only a few hundred meters that afternoon, the 307th, however, was stuck several hundred meters behind and to the right in the Ravenne de fontaine aux Charmes. Here, it would stay for the night. Up ahead and on the left, the 308th dug in for the night as well. To the left of the 308th, the African-American 368th was nowhere 
to be seen or heard or found as we know. It was to be a hellish night. Both the German and American artillery never stopped firing. Shells rained in on the battlefront, pounding the soldiers of both sides ceaselessly. The next morning, the 28th of September, was to be the same as the previous two. The American guns pounded the German positions starting at 0530 in the misty and cold darkness. The wet earth shook violently as the trees exploded just a few hundred meters away from the men of the 77th Division. 30 minutes after the morning barrage started, it lifted. The men of the 308th, from the efforts made the afternoon before, were now aimed at a hill named L'Homme Mort by the local French. Okay, I'll be the one to say it. Perhaps the local hill naming conventions weren't the most creative here. To be clear, however, this is not Le Mort Homme, the infamous hill that witnessed some of the most horrific fighting during the Battle of Verdun. This is instead L'Homme Mort, which on U.S. Army maps was called Hill 230, it being 230 meters in height from sea level. Two, further muddy the waters, I'll be using the neat literary trick of switching between La Morte and Hill 230 to try and keep this narrative interesting. Major Whittlesey was sticking to orders. To his left, the 368th was still nowhere to be seen. On his right, the 307th was behind his battalion. Both of his flanks were exposed to the enemy. Whittlesey would advance all the same. Orders were orders, and Whittlesey believed his commanders had a good reason for issuing them. His men were worn out and low on food, but he had to keep pushing them. In the early morning dark, the, quote, New York prison men, unquote, and country boys moved off into the shattered trees where the enemy was known to be. When the men encountered smoking and bloody shell holes surrounded by smoking bits of unrecognizable meat, they knew their gunners had done a good job that morning. The Germans were indeed in rough shape. Their line was cracking up, and reinforcements were coming in dribs and drabs only. The fallback continued as the Germans pulled back to the Hagen Nord trench lines now. Realignment of forces remaining was desperately needed. They fought a running retreat in the early morning as the doughboys closed on them and engaged them in moving firefights through the woods. By 8.30 that morning, both 1st Battalion, now on the left, and 2nd Battalion on the right had advanced one kilometer forward. They now faced a dangerous area. Ahead of them were two hills. On the left, La Morte, and on the right, Les Cotchen, which translates to the Four Oaks. Between the steep slopes of the two hills ran the deep Ravine de Dargon, running north-south. And at the northern end of the ravine, the Germans had expanded a pre-war mill known as the Moulin de Lomort into a rear area rest camp. From the southern end of the Ravine de Argon, the end facing the Americans now, another ravine formed the bottom leg of an L and ran east-west along the southern slopes of Le Chen. This east-west ravine contained a German railhead and supply depot named the Depot de Machine. Take a look at the map provided on the episode post on firstworldwarpodcast.com and you'll see the terrain. The Ravine d'Argon was a death trap, low ground where the Americans would be trapped by Germans on the hills. Whittlesey's plan was to avoid the north-south ravine by attacking and seizing the two hills on either side of it. 1st Battalion would go up Hill 230 on the left, a.k.a. Lombard. 2nd Battalion would have to cross the east-west ravine, take the Depot de Machine, and push up Le Gatrchen Hill. At 11.30, after runners had bolted through the woods to get the messages to regimental command, 
the divisional guns let loose a storm of fire on the hills. At noon, the second attack of the day went in. 1st Battalion pushed its way up La Morte, fighting hard against the retreating Germans. The company in the lead, Company A, soon found itself with its last officer dead when Lieutenant Whiting was killed after a machine gun nest opened up on the advancing doughboys. Alpha Company's 1st Sergeant Bergas stepped in and took out the German machine gun teams. He then had to take command of what was left of his company. In a clearing in the woods on Hill 230, the Americans encountered a small German cemetery with a cleverly camouflaged log cabin nearby. Private John Nell was there. Quote, That afternoon, we passed by a two-room log cabin and a little cemetery out to one side. We circled around this place, and just as we got to the back of it, a machine gun opened up on us, the bullets hitting all around. We all dropped to the ground, but our platoon leader stopped and looked at a piece of paper, which I suppose was a map. The commander put the paper back in his pocket, looked at us, and said, Get up and stay up. What are you dropping to the ground for? You men must be scared to stand up. We kept on advancing in spite of the machine gun fire. Unquote. To the right, the 2nd Battalion became bogged down in the battle for the depot de machines supply dump. As the battalion commander, Major Kenneth Budd, was with Major Whittlesey, the commander on the ground was one Captain George McMurtry. And that's a name you'll want to remember. Two, McMurtry's right. The 307th Infantry was also pushing on the depot de machines, but a German counterattack forced them back some 600 meters. McMurtry's 2nd Battalion now had an exposed right flank, as well as a halted advance. Around 3.30 that afternoon, soldiers of the 2nd Battalion saw Germans popping up on their right and then popping up on their right rear. The enemy had driven a wedge between them and the 307th Infantry, and they were now encircling the 2nd Battalion. If they didn't act fast, they would be cut off and surrounded. Against those orders put out by Major General Alexander, Captain McMurtry made the call to pull his own men back a few hundred meters to eliminate the German threat on his right. Of course, his pulling back meant that Major Whittlesey's combined 1st and 2nd Battalion force was now up on top of Longmort with no one on either side of them. Whittlesey began to realize how dangerous his situation was by evening when runners and patrols came back saying they could find neither the 368th to their left nor the 2nd Battalion under McMurtry to the right. By now, he and his men were over the crest of Longmort and on the northern slope, hunkering down in a seasonal stream bed that featured a concrete bunker with a log cabin addition on top of it cut into the ravine. Further down the bed, there were the remnants of other German cabins that had been destroyed by the artillery earlier. And behind on the crest was a captured German trench line with plenty of barbed wire for protection. The young major, not a military man by trade or ancestry, figured this was as good a spot as any and organized the men he had with him into a hollow square defensive position with all eyes looking out. Everyone was to dig in where necessary, hold their fire unless otherwise ordered, and stay silent. By nightfall, he knew his chain of human runners he'd been leaving in the wake of his advance had been broken by the enemy. Nevertheless, patrols were pushed up continuously to make contact with regimental command. The Germans hadn't wasted time in retaking the ground given up by McMurtry's part of 2nd Battalion. They could be heard in the woods all around La Morte, trying to figure out who was out there and how many there were. Major Whittlesey, along with Major Budd of 2nd Battalion, and the officers spoke quietly in the bunker. The 1st Battalion commander was soft-spoken, but frank. They were cut off from the rest of the division. The enlisted men were not to be told in order to avoid panic. They would have to sit tight and wait until they could be relieved. They were now 
in what has become known as the small pocket. The 77th Division Command Staff wasn't fully aware of the situation until the next day, the 29th of September, when the news finally made its way up the chaotic communication channels of runners and tenuous phone connections. Already, the 308th Regiment's new commander, Colonel Cromwell Stacy, was working to make contact with his cutoff battalion. Quick side note, Colonel Stacy took over for the sacked Colonel Prescott, who had been fired for not following orders to attack fast enough. Colonel Stacy, an old army salt with a long military career and plenty of battle experience in France already, ordered a Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Smith to gather some 30 men to make contact with Whittlesey's small pocket and set up a new chain of runner posts where a message would be communicated from one runner to the next all the way back to regimental headquarters like a game of combat telephone. Those men, not being detailed as runners, would be hauling ammunition up to the 1st Battalion's position on Hill 230. What happened now is really one of the events that drove the writing of this episode. For all of the stories of incomprehensible slaughter on the Western Front, there are others too that highlight the unimaginable bravery people will carry out when others are endangered. These stories need to be told so that they don't fade away. Lieutenant Colonel Smith's patrol was led by a Sergeant Hitlin, who himself had led a patrol out of the small pocket the night before and had made it back to 308th's command post. The group moved off into the trees hours before the leaden skies would lighten. Once in the woods, the group took a wrong trail, easy enough to do in this hellish jungle. Smith and Sergeant Hitler were on point, leading the group when Smith heard movement up ahead. He had just enough time to yell out for those behind him to duck down. A German machine gun ripped the damp early morning air apart. Smith himself was hit in the leg, but as he went down, he had his forty-five pistol out and was popping rounds back out towards the enemy. His covering fire helped give his men behind him the crucial seconds they needed to recover and start putting out their own rifle fire. With the Americans firing back, Lieutenant Colonel Smith now took action. Despite his leg wound, he made a move to start flanking the German machine gun so he could take it out. It was here that a second enemy gun opened up and caught him in its fire as well, a bullet smashing into his side and taking him down. A private Cypus dumped two bags of hand grenades in the trail and crawled up to the colonel to start giving him first aid. Lieutenant Colonel Smith pushed him off and began crawling. Bullets ripped through the air, punching into tree trunks and cutting leaves all around them. Smith's eyes were on the hand grenades, which lay out in the open. In an act of bravery that could truly only have come out of love for one's fellow soldiers, Smith got up amidst all the screaming bullets and charged towards the satchels in the trail. He ran into the open. He grabbed the bags. He kept on running right on into the other side of the trail where he dove down. Smith now took a hand grenade in each hand and crawled closer to the first German gun, trying to get a spot where he could properly toss his bombs and take out the enemy. A small clearing was up ahead. He crawled toward it painfully. He made it. He stood to toss up his grenades. It was here that a German machine gun swiveled on him and let loose a burst of rounds. Smith fell immediately with a bullet through his head. The firefight raged on a bit longer, with the Germans putting out so much machine gun fire, the two remaining officers with the American party pulled everyone back down the trail. They would have to skirt this part of the forest if they were going to get to Whittlesey's command. For his courageous actions, Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Smith would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. In the air, the AEF's 50th Squadron was flying as low as the pilots dared as they tried to look for the men of the 308th. While the weather grounded most American flights, it didn't seem to bother their German counterparts much, 
so there was an added element of danger to these search missions. The pilots, however, had no luck in identifying the location of Major Whittlesey and his command. The pilots were rushing over the trees, looking for cocky spots in a field of blurry greens and browns. In the small pocket on La Morte, nerves were getting frayed, but everyone was holding. Food and ammunition were running low, and it was dawning on the enlisted men that they weren't staying here because they were waiting for reinforcements. They were waiting on this hill because they couldn't get off it. The forest around them was alive with the movement of German troops, and what officers and men alike of the 308th didn't understand was that the Germans in the area had received orders to pull back to the Gieselherstellung trenches further back in the woods. The Germans realized they had someone surrounded on Hill 230, but they still didn't know the unit size, status, or organization. So they kept the unit encircled and under observation. For the Germans, it was a wasted opportunity. They could have slaughtered the Americans on that hill. Major Whittlesey, in conference with Major Budd of 2nd Battalion and other officers, continued to push out patrols aimed at re-establishing the runner chain and contact with the rear. That morning of the 29th, Lieutenant Arthur McKeo and Battalion Sergeant Major Benjamin Gatica both led patrols out into the forest. Amongst the trails, the two patrols came into contact with the Germans and then each other, and after a running firefight not far from the pocket, the Doughboy shot and killed an enemy machine gun team. Sergeant Major Gatica and his men carried the bodies of two Germans and their machine gun back up towards Hill 230. The corpses would be searched for any intel they might divulge. A short while later, Following another firefight, Lieutenant McKeok sent most of his patrol back up the hill with a mortally wounded German officer who would be questioned before he eventually died. And here starts another story that drove the writing of this episode. It was another gloomy gray day, and the heavy foliage further dimmed the ambient light in the Argonne. Lieutenant McKeogh had sent his patrol back save for two privates, Jack Hershkowitz and Jack Monson. McKeogh figured a small group of three had a better chance of making it through the German cordon better than a larger group. Around 2.30 in the afternoon, the three men hunkered down in the woods. The Germans were everywhere around them. Just to the south, the part of 2nd Battalion under Captain McMurtry was now attacking to break through to the 1st Battalion's position, they were having no effect on the German defenses, and gunfire raged. To the east, the 2nd Battalion and the 307th Infantry were also battling the enemy in the Depot de Machines, where they were also stuck. Lieutenant McKeogh, Private Monson, and Private Hershkowitz moved through the woods carefully and as silently as possible. It was enough to drive one mad. The noise of Germans nearby the rustle of trees and brush that showed the enemy was impossibly close, and the occasional glimpse of a man amongst the trees. They stayed silent through it all, weapons at the ready. At one point, rifle fire cracked out in front of them just a few meters away. The three wet and nerve-shot men froze low to the ground. They'd been found. The German soldier, rifle at the ready, came out in the trail ahead of them. He looked over their spot in the woods and kept on moving cautiously past them. He hadn't seen them, and neither had his comrades around him. When this danger passed, Mikio literally put his lips to one each of Monson's and Hershkowitz's ears and told them the message he was carrying, find out what was happening with communications to the rear. Mikio, hand-gripping his forty-five pistol, told each man that it was imperative that they make it to regimental headquarters. Should they be discovered, at this point it was when, not if, all three were to disperse and make his own way back to 308th headquarters. In the evening, the three doughboys were crawling through the woods when they came upon a clearing with a trail. Moving down the trail was as risky as them firing off fireworks in an open field, but McKeo had to do it. They needed to close the distance between them and the rear. 
They moved onto the trail, keeping to the side and bent nearly double as they walked quickly. Then two Germans stepped out into the trail ahead of them. They stared at the three Americans. The Americans stared back. The Germans recovered first, one shouting something in German and then firing. Mikio, Hershkowitz, and Monson dove into the woods as bullets whizzed past them. Mikio got a bead on one of the enemy and fired his pistol just as the man fired at him. Mikio's first bullet went through the man's head. One of the German's bullets went through Mikio's wrist. The second German disappeared into the trees. Once Mikio's wounded wrist was wrapped, the three men lay down on the wet forest floor to wait for full dark to fall. Around eight that night, they pushed off again until they came to another path in the darkness. They decided to also take this one, despite the obvious risk. Just a few minutes into their new advance, there came a brusque voice. Bist du Deutsch? McKeo and his men dropped to the ground, and the bullets started to fly again. This time, though, the Germans fired in the wrong direction. And as the fusillade increased, the three Americans used the racket as cover to move deeper into the forest. Getting a sense of where they were, McKeo informed Hershkowitz and Monson of some tough news. They were right next to a German bivouac site. They'd have to wait until this latest episode settled, and then make a break for it once again. McKeo, likely exhausted and drained from the afternoon's stress and his bullet-shattered wrist, then promptly fell asleep. In the middle of the night, Monson awoke McKeo, and the scrappy lieutenant did his best to get them all away from the enemy campsite. Unfortunately, he led them right into it. Another harsh command in German from somewhere in the damp darkness. The German who gave it chambered around into his rifle. Time to go. Separate, McKeo cried out. And he was dashing forward to a hole he could see up ahead that was between a couple of trees. He jumped and crashed into the hole feet first, smashing right into a German soldier. McKeo actually landed on top of him. He wasn't alone. In the foxhole, another soldier rose. Without thinking, McKeo blurted out the first thing he could think of. Los is los. The German, confused as anyone else, repeated the question. Los is los. Too slow. Mikio had all the time he needed. In the tight foxhole, he raised his 45, jammed it into the German's chest, and fired twice. Feeling the ground wriggle under his feet, Mikio then pointed his pistol between his knees and fired twice into the back of the German soldier he was literally standing on. He looked up to see the first man he'd shot digging into his belt. No time to wait. Mikio shot him again. Then he scrambled out of the hole and bolted into the night. Private Monson was running along a rail line in the dark when he saw a German soldier coming his way. Monson dropped off to the side, and when the enemy soldier stopped right next to him unawares, Monson raised his pistol in the darkness and put a bullet through the man's head. He too, then ran like hell into the darkness of the forest. Private Hershkowitz found a hole to hide in and stayed there. Rain came again in the dark of early morning. And once it came down hard enough, McKeo headed west and south to avoid any enemy patrols. He still had to duck a few, but he eventually followed a wagon road until he could hear voices up ahead. He had put his pistol away, which he had held in his hand for over 24 hours. He took the 45 back out and readied it, but then could understand the voices of the approaching soldiers. He rushed out into the road, scaring the bejesus out of the doughboys. McKeo had made it back to the 308th. Within a couple of hours, Privates Hershkowitz and Monson had also made it back. All three men provided every piece of knowledge they had regarding the German forces surrounding the 1st Battalion, and all three would later be awarded Distinguished Service Crosses for their nighttime adventure. It was now the 30th of September. Elsewhere along the front, General Pershing had to grudgingly admit that his 72-hour timeline for the offensive's first phase had been blown. His troops were exhausted, and some divisions had to be relieved for casualties or because they were no longer combat effective.
First Corps would not be launching a general attack as they had the previous four days. But the 77th Division would be attacking to force their front line forward and relieve Major Whittlesey and his men. They would be doing so as the Germans continued their retreat to the Giselher line. 2nd Battalion of the 308th would be launching an attack to reach the small pocket at 4.30 p.m. after a 30-minute artillery barrage. The artillery would pound known German positions in the Ravin Moulin de la Morte and at the Depot de Machines. While Captain McMurtry and his 2nd Battalion attacked up La Morte, the 307th on the right would go up Le Quatrechen Hill to the east. These units were to come online with Whittlesey's surrounded men, and then they were to be relieved. Up on La Morte, everyone was getting to the end of their rope. Food and water were mostly out. Ammunition was low. There were persistent rumors that the Germans were about to attack at this time, and when they didn't, a new attack was about to come at this new time. Everyone knew they were surrounded, but for now, they kept it together. This was probably due to Major Charles Whittlesey's appearance and bearing throughout the time they had been on the hilltop. A short biographical sketch of Whittlesey will come later, but if he was at the end of his own rope, he certainly wasn't showing it. Whittlesey was everywhere all the time, as his men would later recall and he seemed to go without sleep. He maintained his quiet but firm demeanor at all times, and his uniform remained reasonably clean despite the past five days of continuous combat. His face was clean-shaven whenever a bit of water was to be had. He was every inch the professional officer, and his quiet leadership set the example that his men followed. The tension inside the small pocket changed around 6.30 a.m. when a patrol of doughboys came into the perimeter. These guys weren't 1st Battalion, though. They were 2nd Battalion. They quickly informed Whittlesey they had been sent to make contact, that there were few Germans around, and that those Germans still in the area were in the process of pulling back. As the morning went on, more patrols came in, and they brought food for many of the men who by now hadn't eaten in upwards of two to three days, Private Lee McCollum's reaction was not out of the ordinary. Quote, Ration details came in. Boy, were they a welcome sight. We went at that food like a pack of wolves. The ration details packed in everything they could carry, which in itself was no small job over that distance and ground. Unquote. American artillery slammed into the nearby ravines at 4 p.m., and at 4.30, hundreds of American soldiers took off up La Morte and down into the ravine where the Depot de Machine was located. The supply dump was quickly seized as it was mostly abandoned. The Germans immediately opened fire with machine gun team after machine gun team once the men of the 307th started charging up Lake Quatrechen Hill to the right of La Morte. They launched their own artillery, lobbing gas shells to the rear of the attacking Americans in order to trap them. The Americans kept pushing, and using the shell holes just made during the barrage, they took out the enemy machine gun nests. By 6 p.m., German resistance in the area of the two hills began to dramatically drop off, and then within a few minutes, it had disappeared completely. The 307th secure the Quatrechen Hill and made contact with the 308th. Captain McMurtry's 2nd Battalion men scrambled to the top of La Morte and down the other side, securing the area. Small Pocket was now relieved. Our scouts, who had been out many times during the day, were returning from their last trip, and they reported that everything was clear now, Private McCollum said later. The tight circle of German opposition had loosened up, and we could proceed again. I shall always feel that our leaders did a brilliant job of handling a difficult situation during the three days just past. We will never know how many of us owe our lives to their strategy of having us lie quietly in that forest, 
rather than attacking or exposing ourselves to a superior force. This quote, as Robert Laplander points out in Finding the Lost Battalion, was to prove visionary. Whittlesey and his men were relieved, and the major moved through the cleared forest back to his regiment's headquarters. He later wrote, I'll never forget going into the headquarters dugout and getting warm for the first time. Cocoa, cigars, then back to the battalion again. Even after an ordeal like this, the major remained business-oriented. As we know, he would face a far greater ordeal in just a few days. The work of the battalion, the regiment, and the division was to continue. Already, Major Whittlesey had his marching orders for the morning. The 1st Battalion would be advancing again. The men of the 77th Division believed the German retreat to the Gieselherstellung deeper within the Argonne Forest was due to their grinding their way through them. In truth, the German 76th and 2nd Landwehr Divisions were pulling back because the 28th Division just to the right was making dangerous inroads up the valley of the River Air, destabilizing the German line from there. This is where we will be heading over to in the next episode, actually. We're moving over to the 28th Division's line, taking a look at their operations in the Argonne and in the River Air Valley. We'll also be looking at the 35th Division next to them, where things are about to become really grim. All right. Patreon pitch time. As patrons on Patreon, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as submitting a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. You will also have the possibility of naming a battle you'd like to hear covered on the show. If this sounds interesting to you, Check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at ww one podcast Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. As always, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. <laughs>